Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm um, 150. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you all this morning here at church. I'm so excited to start this brand new series in the book of Psalms. Now, we plan to be in the book of Psalms from now till about Advent, so we're going to be in it for a little while, so I hope you're excited as I am. I'm pumped about Psalms. John Calvin called the book of Psalms the anatomy of all parts of the soul. So his title for the book of Psalms is the anatomy for all parts of the human soul. And this is the reason he explains for the title. There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in the mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. All the parts of Scripture contain the commandments which God enjoined His servants to announce to us. But here, the prophets themselves, seeing they are exhibited to us as speaking to God and laying open all their inmost thoughts and affections, call, or rather draw, each of us to the examination of himself in particular, in order that none of the many infirmities to which we are subject and of the many vices with which we abound may remain concealed. It is certainly a rare and singular advantage when all lurking places are discovered and the heart is brought into light, purged from that most baneful infection, hypocrisy. A lot of old words there. But basically what John Calvin is saying is that in the book of Psalms is you see the depth of human emotion. You see the depths of experiences and uh, uh, feelings that we experience, some that are distracting, some that are agitating. And in it, you see in the book of Psalms, they're mirrored to yourself. So my prayer is that during this series in the Psalms, you can see the beautiful depth of emotion displayed by God's people and see in that a mirror into, which, into what is going on in your own heart and soul. May that in turn lead you into the ready arms of a loving God who created you to know him, enjoy him, and to praise him. So as we dive into the book of Psalms, as we see one of the true books that we see so much depth of emotion and of experience, may we use that as a mirror to look into what we're own, where we ourselves are feeling. Now here's the deal. Certain types of churches in the past have been known to be types of churches that don't express emotion. There's a reputation in some churches, especially those who are of a, a scholarly kind of leaning, that emotions seem to be a negative thing. Can I tell you this, guys? If you read the book of Psalms, you'll see that emotion is a major element of this Christian life. And so as we look at the book of Psalms, guys, can you with me feel the book of Psalms? And as we dive into the book of Psalms, may it be a mirror into what's going on in your own heart and may it point you to God. So really quickly, I want to let you know that biblical scholars have noted that the book of Psalms seems to divide into five books. All right, a, a clear way of dividing the book of Psalms is divided into five books. My old professor, uh, Dr. Mark Furtado, believes that this is an intentional match to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. 
So they believe that the book of Psalms was intentionally kind of divided into five separate books because it matches the five books of the Pentateuch. Now the first four books of this, each of the Psalms all end with a doxology. That's how they kind of made this delineation. As they say, this book ends with this doxology, this spontaneous bit of praise. The fifth book of the Psalms though ends with a doxology as well, but it's a whole Psalm. This whole Psalm consists of praise and a call to praise. This is Psalm 150. And Psalm 150 is like the, the climax, it's the end of a great symphony, the end of a great story. And if you look at this Psalm, it's filled with calls to praise that you find scattered throughout the book. It, it has an opening and closing command to praise, like we've seen, uh, we will see in all the other Psalms. It tells us who must praise God, where God should be praised, and the modes of his praise. Then it says to praise God again. So here's what we're doing, guys. We're starting a whole series in the book of Psalms, but we're actually going to start with the end first. How many of you guys, when you get a book, actually read the end first? Nobody. <laughs> Do you really? Wow. I would never read the end first. That's just weird. But, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're starting with the end, and here's why. We're going to start with the end because all of Psalms, as we divide into, as you'll see later on, as we kind of dive into Psalms later on during the week, or later on during this year, is that we'll see that it's about a rule, a kind of instructional manual on how to live a godly life. But ultimately, it points to this one idea. That what we're meant to do as, as creation, as created beings, as, as men and women in this earth, what we're meant to do is we are meant to praise. It ends in this call to praise. And so all this instruction of godly rules and talk, talks about how to live a godly life and talks about how to dive into the word. It talks about the range of emotion. But all that should lead you to one place. It leads you to praise. So we're going to start with the end and start with the idea that what we're called to do as we dive into the book of Psalms is to praise. Now there's something about singing praise that is, humanly speaking, profound and powerful. If you look at all kind of spheres of social anthropology, uh, most social scientists would say music does something to humans physically, emotionally, spiritually. We are creatures that need to, need to and love to be around music at some kind of level. We then must consider that the creator God of the universe has given us a gift, this gift to his people for their good and their joy and his glory. God is serious about singing praise. That alone should kind of incite some curiosity into us. Do you guys know that God himself sings? Do you guys know that? I always often wondered what his voice sounded like if he sang. I mean, sometimes I picture like, when I hear his voice, I think of like a Morgan Freeman sometimes narrating a documentary. <laughs> But I don't picture Morgan Freeman singing, though. So then I'm like, okay, okay. So like, then I think like old school, three tenors, Luciano Pavarotti, anybody? Yeah? No? God himself sings. Zephaniah chapter 3, he says he sings over us. I love that image, by the way, the idea of God singing over us. I remember when Josiah was first born, and we placed Josiah into Gina's arms, and she was holding Josiah, and she started singing, you're a good boy, you're such a good boy. And I remember being like, obviously I was weeping like a baby too. <laughs> and I remember just this picture of like, that's Zephaniah 3 to me. God singing. It's just like my wife was singing over Josiah when he was born, placed into his arms. That's what God does over us as he sings. Do you know that singing is mentioned 400 times in the Bible? I'll say that again. Singing is mentioned 400 times in the Bible. 50 of those are commands. 50 times the Bible commands us to sing. That should kind of raise some curiosity in us. Why? I personally love this. I often felt that people with great voices are often wasted on some people. 
like, people, like great voices are wasted on some people because you see, I love to sing. I do. I'm being real and honest and truthful with all of you. I love to sing. I love musicals. Open and vulnerable, guys. Please don't make fun of me. But here's a sad issue. I love to sing. I'm not very good at it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not terrible. I'm not like nails on a chalkboard terrible. But most often while I'm singing, my wife will lovingly look at me and say, well, you changed the key again. <laughs> I don't even know what that means and how I did it. <laughs> so like, oh, I did? Okay. Now some people are amazing singers, my wife being one of them. Some people have beautiful voices and they can stay in key. But often those people don't like to sing all the time and I don't understand it. It's just they're keeping their gift to themselves. I'm like, I don't understand. If I had your voice, I would sing everything. I'd be at Bojangles ordering a chicken biscuit, singing it. <laughs> I'd be preaching the sermon through song. And if I had one of those voices, I'd be doing it all the time because I love singing. I really do. Like, I'm one of those guys that like the, likes even the musicals that like, seem awkward because they're all singing all the lines. I'm still okay with it. And I'll still sing those lines. I love it. I love The Greatest Showman. I love Hamilton. I love Les Mis. I love all that stuff. Being open and vulnerable with all of you guys. I love it. Now, before you check out on me, before you're here sitting here, like some of you are thinking, I hate singing. This sermon isn't for me. What the Bible is commanding in your singing is a singing of praise. It is a giving and ascribing of praise. So this is not just for those people who love to sing. This is for all of us. C.S. Lewis has this quote on praise. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. And it says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell someone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that, that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commending us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. How amazing is it that God commands us to praise him over and over again, yet that is that very praise is the appointed consummation of our delight in him. Praise completes our joy. Do you get that? I remember the first time I ever got a girl's phone number. It was a momentous occasion for me. But all I wanted to do was tell all my friends. I didn't care about really getting her phone number. I was more like, dude, I got a girl's phone number. I just wanted to tell all my friends about it. I was walking on cloud nine. I was like, I can't believe this. It was like, like five years ago. I'm just kidding. But no. <laughs> There's something innate about the way we were made. That when we express delight, it completes our delight in something. When we tell people how beautiful, look at that mountain, that meal. Oh my gosh, it was so delicious. You can't believe how good it was. It furthers our, it, cons it consummates our further delight in that object. And guys, I want you to see this, that this is what we're talking about. When you say God's commanding us to praise, when he commands us to sing, God's commanding us to fully enjoy, fully delight and complete that enjoyment in him. With that said, let's dive into Psalm 150. This Psalm is rather comprehensive in its direction of praise because it talks about the where, the why, the how, and the who of praise. The Psalmist here is a really good journalist. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, 
Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So the where of praise is what we're going to start with. The where of praise. It's really an important question. Where are we to praise the Lord? The psalmist says, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. It declares, first of all, that we must praise God in his temple, his holy place. We must praise him with the focused character of our worship. Guys, we must be worshiping people. We must be a people who gather together to praise God and to worship Him. That is the teaching of the New Testament. Hear this. When we say praise Him in the sanctuary, what the Israelite people who read this psalm, what that would have known is that's the temple. That's the gathering of the people. Prior to the temple, that would have been where they gathered around the mountain. This is what he's meaning literally is praise Him in His temple. is literally saying praise Him as a gathered mass of the corporate body. New Testament, Hebrew 10, Hebrews 10 says this, neglect not the assembling together of yourselves as is the habit of some. It's easy to think that we can worship God and praise God just anywhere and therefore we don't have to come together as his people. Can I tell you this? The psalmist wants to make the point that communal, communal worship is essential. Do you hear that? It's necessary. Communal worship is important for the people of God. We need to come together. Guys, what this is saying, this is not saying that this is the only place you can worship God. Remember, it says you can worship Him everywhere. It says, praise Him in His mighty heavens. But what he's saying, when he initially, the psalmist says, praise God in His sanctuary, when he says that first, what he's really trying to communicate to us is that you can worship God anywhere, but it is an essential part of your Christian life. An essential part is to come together as the corporate body, come together on Sunday morning as your church family, and to worship God together. Do you hear that? Now, this is not because, oh, the church uh, needs to fill the seats on a Sunday morning. This is because God has always been and always has been about a communal religion. Has always been, has never been about you having an individual just, he doesn't care about you just having an individual walk with God. That's important. Hear me well. Don't be like, oh, Lawrence doesn't care about individual. No, no, I do care. What's important though is God said, you're not called to live this life on your own. Do it together. Do it with your family. Do it with the body of believers I've placed you together with. Come and worship together as... Um, and don't go off on your own. Don't be a lone ranger. Be strengthened by each other. Encourage one another. Bear each other's burdens. Worship together. It's important. It's essential. It's necessary. This is the first start of the wear of worship. The psalm also declares, praise him in his mighty heavens. And I think this phrase, just, it calls us to praise him basically in all of creation, wherever you are, in all places. It's, in verse 1, talks about our gathered, focused worship as a community, but there's also moments in our lives when we're not gathered together. We're not always here together on Sunday morning. We're always to be praising the Lord, wherever we are. Our lives are to be, as much as possible, filled up with praise. You know, we're not just to be a, a short one and a half hours on a Sunday morning, not short two and a half hours because you go to small group either. We're all, all of our lives are to be lived for God, whether we're at school or work or at home. These are not places that are away from the Lord. These are not places that are not underneath the Lord's service. Understand, in the praise Him in the mighty heavens, that literally means praise Him in the firmness. That literally means praise Him where this is all. The heavens is over all, so anything underneath this is His. Guys, can I tell you this? Your work is not outside of His sphere of influence. Your work is not separate from your, who you are as a Christian. Do you hear that? Your school is not separate from who you are as a Christian. You praise Him in your school. You praise Him at your work. You praise Him at your house. You praise Him everywhere. It's all underneath the heavens. 
The where of praise is that that's where we praise the Lord. So where do we praise the Lord? We praise him everywhere. And we praise him, though, with focused devotion when we gather together as his people. Secondly, the why of praise. Verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Why do we praise the Lord? Verse 2 says this, we praise the Lord because of what he has done and who he is. We praise him for his acts of power, and we praise him for his surpassing greatness. I feel like I've said praise so many times already in this sermon. I gotta, I gotta like slow down and say that word so much. But I'm gonna keep on going. We praise him for what he has done. When we reflect on the Lord, when we lift our voices in praise, our songs are prayed with full of acknowledgement of the activity of God. God is our creator. He's our sustainer. He is our redeemer. We think about what God has done and the things that he is doing, the things that he will do. We want to raise our voices in praise for that. Guys, the Old Testament is full of this. In the Old Testament, the Psalms in particular, that, that God's people look back and they see the redemption out of Egypt. They're brought out of slavery. They're brought out of bondage and into the promised land. They look at the beginning, uh, the bringing of the people of God out of exile and towards the end of the history of Israel. And in all these things, they recount the deeds of God to his people. Ultimately, the greatest deliverance of God in all of our lives for those who trust in Christ is he offered in the gospel the redemption that we have in Christ at the cross. Wherever you're from, whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through now, whatever you will go through, the greatest deliverance ever of all time in all of history is the deliverance that God gave us when he sent Jesus Christ to die upon a cross, the perfect one, the blameless one. To die upon the cross to take the weight and penalty of our sin. Guys, hear this. Can I just, for those of you who don't know why God had to do this, can I just explain this something to you really quickly? See, here's the deal. A lot of people, we say this in Christian areas and churches, we say about, and Jesus died for your sin. Then you believe that. And most people will be like, okay, if you grew up in the church, you might be like, oh, okay. I, I got that. But for people who did not grow up in the church, you're like, why did he have to die? Right? Do you ever hear that question? He died for your sins, but why, you're telling me this, but why did he have to die? Can I tell you something? Here's why he had to die. I'm just going to be honest and real with you guys. Because it's this. We, as human beings, created in the image of God, we have something inside of us yearning for justice. Right? Because here's the deal, here's the reality. We look around the world and we see some, there's something flawed, there's something broken. Whether you're a Christian or not, you look around the world and you see injustice happening, you see genocide, you see slavery, you see so many terrible things, and you can only see that there's something that is actually known to be terrible because something inside of you knows that there's something better, something that is right. Do you hear that? There's something inside that says, mm, this, this doesn't seem right, this doesn't fit. I, this seems, there needs to be justice. But if there was no source of justice, if there was no source of right and wrong, then it shouldn't not fit, it should just be the way it is. Right? But because something inside of us, because we were made in the image of God, craves and yearns for justice, then we see here the reality that we see, and this is a human condition, and I've said this over and over again, as human beings, we all want to be known, we want to be loved, and we all crave purpose. But the reality is once we want to be known, when we start thinking about ourselves and this desire to be known, we realize that we often wear masks with everybody because the reality is we're scared to be known because when we think about ourselves and know ourselves, we're kind of messed up. I know I am. I know that I don't even, I can't even live up to my own personal standards. The standards I even set for myself, I can't reach them, I can't meet them. Let alone justice and true righteousness. 
And so we look at this and this idea that I want to be known, but if I'm known, then I can't really truly be loved. And we're at a quandary. And in the midst of that quandary, God steps in and he says, no, you can be known and loved because my son, he lives the perfect life and he'll take upon himself the punishment so that justice can still be in existence. See, why did Jesus die? Because he took upon himself the punishment that was meant for us. Because a God of justice, a God that is, is justice, needs to exist for us to have a concept of beauty and justice in the world. But for him to remain just, to be truly be just, there needs to be punishment for our sins. And so Jesus came and died in our place, took upon the penalty of the world, and reconciled us to God. That's the incredible news of the gospel. And that is the biggest thing, the why of praise. Any one of us who believes in this, any one of us who's been reconciled to God, who has a right relationship, who can now be known, who can now be loved, who can now have incredible purpose, can say, why do we praise God? Because, oh my goodness, what just happened? I've been redeemed. I've been saved. I'm known and I'm loved. Why praise God? Why sing praise? If you know this, then you know the answer. Every one of us, how he spared our lives, how he's blessed us. There is an inexhaustible supply of the things that we can praise God for. But not, we not only praise God for what he's done, but we praise God for who he is. Because he's not just our ticket, he's our treasure. Do you hear that? He's not just our means of getting to end. He is the end itself. And so the greatest thing that we can praise him for is that in his redemption, he has brought us to himself. You see, God is not a means to the greater end, but his redemption is a means to himself. So God isn't here to get you somewhere beyond himself who is, that is something, that, something that is better than himself. He's here in his redemption to get you to him. Do you hear that? He is our great reward. He is our great promise. When he went to Abraham in Genesis, he literally says, I am your great reward. The promise was that we would know him and he would know us. So our praise is focused on who he is. My wife loves me and loves many things about me. But one thing she does not love about me is my tendency to hyperbole. I mean, when I eat a steak or a great meal, when I, I tell people, when I tell her about it, it's like, oh my gosh, it's the best thing I've ever had in my mouth, and nobody's ever had anything that tasted this good ever. <laughs> That's typically how I describe things. If the view is breathtaking, I'll say something more like, oh my gosh, if the normal person saw this, their heart would stop beating because it's just so incredible. <laughs> I'm often prone to hyperbole, am I right? <laughs> my wife doesn't like that. Now, in my defense, which is, because I get to speak, I get to share stuff in my defense. <laughs> I just say I enjoy life, and it's more fun to enjoy life this way. In her defense, she says she likes truth. <laughs> and, and pure truth is good enough. But I'm gonna stick with my way. But let me tell you one thing, this is what's so cool about this. You cannot be hyperbolic about God. You can't say enough anything that's hyperbolic about it. You cannot praise him enough. There are not enough words to say, there's not enough expressions to express. There's not enough that you can say, you cannot go overboard. You cannot exaggerate the goodness and the majesty of God. William Plummer's commentary on the Psalms, in his last paragraph, after writing hundreds and thousands of pages on Psalms, he ends by saying this, if I could come up with the words that were adequate to the praise of God, I would say them. But I can't come up with words that are adequate that fully do justice to who he is. 
You cannot be hyperbolic about it. Why do we praise God? For his mighty acts, yes, and for his majesty, because it is impossible to do, do justice to him. All the redeemed will sing with all of our might, speaking of the truth of who God is forever, and we will never, ever exhaust his worthiness, and we will never tire of praising him. Guys, can I tell you something? I'm just going to be real with you. Can I tell you this? Where have we lost our awe of God? We cannot be hyperbolic enough. Do you guys see that so often we're too busy just praising God for the things he's done? Do you guys ever just stop and like Isaiah, just fall to your face before this creator of God and say, God, you are so good. God, you are so big. Guys, we need to fall down on our faces. We need to see who this God is again because let me tell you, that is our reward. He is our reward. Do not miss him. Do not miss him. He is worthy. He is glorious. He is holy. He is good. And the problem is we're so busy with these little gifts that he gives us that we miss him. We're so busy enjoying all this kind of like, oh, hey, thank you for, uh, you know, some money or some good grades or a good house. And we miss that. That is nothing compared to the goodness of him. As a matter of fact, you can take all that away and still have him and you have more than enough. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Guys, we need to praise him for who he is. And that needs to be a daily, everyday practice for us. Because guys, can I tell you, just like in that song, Come Thou Found, we talk about our heart, you know, it's, it's prone to wander. We need to praise him for who he is and not forget his goodness and his worthiness. And how do we praise it says, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I'm laughing in my own heart because I'm picturing myself praising him with dance and it's not a good sight. <laughs> I, I, I kind of enjoy dancing too, but I'm just saying it's not going to be a good thing. If I praise him right now with dance, you guys would be like, mm, that's not praise, Lawrence. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's not praise. But I just, this is beautiful. How should we praise him? And we come to this section here that occupies about half of this whole psalm where we told him to praise in a variety of ways musically with all these different instruments. So how are we to praise the Lord? Now, you could say, well, this is an exact list. You can only praise him with those instruments. So sorry, guys. Sorry, Nathan. Can't use electric guitar because it uh, doesn't say anything about electric guitar here. Yeah. Doesn't say anything. It does say cymbals. So Arthur, you're good. We couldn't say that this is the exact list, but I think the psalmist had a different point here. I think the psalmist at this point is not talking about words of praise, rather about sounds of praise lifted to the Lord, but there's a reason why. We should not look at these instruments as abstractions, as instruments without any background or history or character to them. I do not think we should read this psalm saying, well, if you really want to worship God, we should have a trumpet and a tambourine and some cymbals or two. No, I think the pious Israelite, as he heard this psalm read, would have thought very much of the occasions on which these instruments were used in the history of God's people. These instruments were richly tied to crucial experiences of the Israelite people. For example, think of the trumpets. For the pious Israelite, the mind would go directly to very solemn religious occasions. The offering of sacrifices at the temple, the Day of Atonement annually, the great moment of victory when the ark was taken up to Jerusalem. That's found in Numbers 10.10, Leviticus 25.9, and Samuel 6.15. At those times, the trumpet was sounded. 
the psalmist called to praise God with the trumpet would have reminded the people of these powerful acts of the Lord and the greatness of God. They remember that trumpet was used to summon together both for worship and civic meetings, Numbers 10 and 1 Kings 11. It would remind them how they were summoned to go into battle for the Lord against the enemies of the Lord and preserve their nation, Joshua 6. See, this instrument carried their minds back to all sorts of occasions in which they praised the Lord. Praise Him in His temple, praise Him in heaven in all that you do. This is literally a tie back to saying, we use a trumpet for solemn occasions, we use a trumpet for call to war. We use a trumpet to celebrate moments of God's great work. The harp and the lyre. Instruments of rejoicing, Genesis chapter 31. Played at the dedication of the temple, played the dedication of the new walls of Jerusalem, played to accompany prophecy and sacrifices, prayed to celebrate victory in battle. First Chronicles 5.12, Nehemiah 12.27, First Samuel 10, First Chronicles 25. And these are examples of the, the harp and the stringed instruments being used in celebration and rejoicing. Praising with tambourine and dance. Once again, elements, and by the way, I never thought of the tambourine as much of an instrument. Like, I like, who can't play the tambourine? You just shake it and hit it, right? I tried playing it. I'm not good at it. Just throw that out there. I just thought it would be the simplest thing ever. But when I watch like Gina's, both Gina's, play the tambourine, like they know how to play the tambourine. I don't. Okay, just throwing that out there. Dance is actually contrasted regularly in the scripture with mourning. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time to mourn and a time to? Anybody? Dance. Right? Dance is a tambourine, especially recognize those times of happiness, celebration, uh, of triumph. I'm going to embarrass Gina a little bit, but at our house, we have Alexa. And Alexa, we say, Alexa, play Can't Stop the Feeling. And then all of a sudden, we hear that Justin Timberlake song come on, and Gina and I will look at each other like, okay. And the head will start nodding. And they start a little, a little, a little boogieing, a little, a little dancing. And then the kids will come running out there, and Hudson and Josiah will be like, up, up, up. And they want to get picked up, and they just want to dance. And can I tell you, those are my favorite times of the day. And we're just together. We're not doing anything. We're just dancing with me, Gina, Hudson, and Josiah. And we're just breaking it down. I'll be honest, I'm like, like a few minutes into it, I'm like, I'm so tired. <laughs> but it's incredible. We're just dancing. We're just celebrating the fact that God has called us and he made us alive. And can I tell you guys, that is praise. Am I right? That is praise. And that's what the Israelites, they contrasted dance with mourning. Right? Instead of mourning, they're dancing. They're celebrating the fact that they're alive, the fact that God's given them breath. So the Israelite people, when they say, praise Him with dancing, they're like, okay, I got you. We're talking about celebrating life when we praise God. Do you hear that? Strings and pipes are recorded here uh, as flutes and mentioned in the moving of the ark and with the sacrifices in 2 Samuel and in 2 Chronicles. These descriptions of the use of instruments in Israelite's history come precisely at the moment when the ark is taken up to Jerusalem. In Chronicles 13.8, we have the key to what this all means. I want you to hear this. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs, with harps, with lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. You see all the same instruments, right? This is when the ark was being brought in. You see, when the ark was being brought in, 1 Chronicles 13, it says, he was celebrating with all their might. So how are we to praise God? With all our might. We hear that again. How are we to praise God? That's right. 
That is what's principally being taught here. That is the great message of Scripture. Our praise of God is not to be an incidental matter for us. Our praise of God is not to be a casual matter. Our praise is to be wholehearted with all of our mind. When Jesus said to, to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with everything about you, give him all of it, with all your might. Now, I love to come to church and sing out. It's one of the few places where I can do that and people don't look at me like I'm crazy. And it always has troubled me to look around and often see people not singing. Now, here's the deal, guys. There are reasons, good reasons, for not singing occasionally. But the Lord wants us to have an enthusiasm in worship. And then it doesn't have to look like you being all like singing like I do, because I love to sing. That's just me. You don't have to look like that when you do it. And it's never a matter of volume. But when you're praising God, the question is, are you, is it this concentrated activity of your being? Are we like David, praising the Lord with all our might, with all our concentration, with all of our focus? Are we coming together in this place, this amazing gift that we call Sunday morning worship with our family, this community of worship, and are we praising God with all our might? Or are we thinking about our lineup for fantasy football? I know. I said it because this is to me too, because every once in a while I'm like, oh, wait, I am thinking about fantasy football. Right? Are we thinking about that meal we're about to have with somebody? Or what's going on the rest of the day? Or the laundry you have to do? Do you hear me? It's not about instruments. It's not about whether or not you have guitars. It's not about whether it's piano. It's not about whether it's an organ. It's not about whether or not you have no instruments and no dance. It's never about the instruments. It's about are you praising God with all your might, with your concentrated being? You see, you're all. Are you expressing your delight in that person? Are you expressing your delight in your God? If I was with um, my wife and we're dating and we're, we're going on this date and this romantic evening and, and all I'm thinking about is all this other stuff, she's just not getting my all. She's getting my leftovers, Right? Why do we often give God our leftovers? Is he not worthy of so much more? I love this quote from John Wesley. This is awesome. Him and his brother wrote like a bazillion, which is an actual number of songs. No, it's, he wrote thousands of songs. And this is a quote. He says, sing lustily and with, a good, and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, no more ashamed of it being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. Let me say that again. Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, no more ashamed of it being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. I'm just gonna be honest with you guys. Those of you who are like, well, I'm not really a praise kind of guy, singing kind of guy. Yeah, but I'll be honest with you. I see you screaming really loud for NC State and UNC at that football game. Right? You seem to be praising pretty loud then, right? I, 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 I can't tell you guys, this is for me here. Because when UF lost last night, I was hurt. <laughs> so I get it. This is, this is pain for me, and this is a message for me. But guys, we do this, don't we? We sing the songs of Satan really loud. We sang those praise. How are we singing the songs to God? How are we singing his praise? Now, let me give you some reasons to sing, all right? For those of you who are like, I hate singing. I have a terrible voice. But let me give you just, I'm not saying you have to sing. I'm saying praise God with all your mind. doesn't mean necessarily singing. But I want to give you some reasons to sing. Psychology today wrote a list of 12 reasons why it's great for you to sing. I'm not going to list all 12, but instead I'm going to give you my reasons to sing. Because <laughs> I'm more of an authority in this college. <laughs> Number one, singing praise helps you to remember. 
It helps you to remember. When I had to learn the greater catechisms for seminary, I had to take, like, I mean, we're talking like in the old English. I don't know why they made you do it, but you had to memorize it in the old English, and I had to write all these catechisms down. I had to memorize them. I couldn't do it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so ridiculous. I have to memorize so many pages. But I bought a CD that somebody put it all to song, and it made it so much easier. It was like, what is man? What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, and eternal. And I, like, I still remember it. <laughs> because it was put to song. Guys, I want you to hear this. I know lyrics from songs from over 20 years ago, and I can still like, sing all those. I still know all the words from that um, Lisa Loeb stay. Nobody here even knows what that song is. I know all the words to that song still, right? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I see with people in your generation. I got you. <laughs> I still know all the words to that song. That's like, when did that song come out? Like 91, 88? I don't even know. I still know all the words to that song, right? There's something about music and lyrics that kind of helps stick in your mind. I don't remember what I did last night. You know? But I still remember all the words to that song. Deuteronomy 31, 21 says this, And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this sh- song shall confront them as a witness. Singing helps you remember. Helps you bring to light the truths about God. So as you sing praise, then you can remember, oh, that is what God did. When you sing blessed assurance, that is my story. I remember, I have blessed assurance. You hear me? Two, singing helps integrate head and heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Singing allows the meat of what is being taught to stick and relate to the emotions that we feel. It allows us to keep from knowledge just puffing us up, but instead allows it to be expressed and processed, right? My wife, like for her, like the way she loves to express emotion and to process emotion, she loves to like just go off with her guitar and like, like sing. That's like her thing, you know, she, she's like, well, well, there's old school indie rock people, you know what I'm saying? She, that's, that's the way she processes emotion. And it's, it's beautiful for her because she can process thoughts through music and express it. Right? That's what music so often helps us do, especially words of truth and scripture in particular, as we sing scripture. It lets us process not just head knowledge, because all head knowledge without love and its processing of emotion just puffs up, right? But lets it become expressed emotion and effectiveness in our life. It integrates head and heart. And then reason number three, singing all allows others to hear what we rejoice and praise. Hebrews 2.12, I'll tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Often I'll sing about what's going on or what I'm thinking about. This is true in my life. Gina knows this. I'll often like, I'm in a situation, it'll make me think of a song and I won't even realize it and I'll start singing a song that my situation or circumstance made me think about. As an example of this is when I decided I was gonna, when I was gonna propose to my wife, um, I took her to this, like, she didn't know I was gonna do this, it was all a surprise, and I took her to like botanical garden, I had it all set up, right? And as I was getting out of the car, as we were getting out of the car, I was, I was humming all the single ladies. In my mind, and I didn't know I was doing it. So Gina later on told me, she's like, I knew you were gonna propose. I was like, how did you know I was gonna propose? And she said, you were humming all the single ladies. <laughs> so I was like, oh, because I liked it, I wanted to put a ring on it, so. That was what I decided to do. And so I didn't realize that. But it allows others to hear what we rejoice and what we're praising as we're singing. People can see what you rejoice about, what you sing and shout about the most. Are we singing and shouting about our football team the most or about our living Savior? So how are we to praise the Lord? 
We're to praise Him with all our might, with all our focused energy, our concentrated being. That's how we praise the Lord. Find the who of praise. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The psalm concludes with this. All of us who have been made alive by God, all of us who have been created and have the very breath of God breathed into us, all of us especially who have been made in God's own image for fellowship with Him, we need to praise the Lord. That is our task, that is our mission, that is our calling, that is our command, and we should never, ever take it lightly. Never, ever take it casually. We're called to praise the Lord. Here's what I love about it. The Westminster Confession of Faith says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And uh, what, what a pastor writer God that I love so much says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It kind of goes hand in hand. And this is the idea of praise is that we express delight in what we enjoy, and it finishes and consummates our enjoyment of something. Guys, the call for us is, do you enjoy the treasure of God? The good news is that you are not alone in this world. The good news is that you can be known, you can be loved. Does that, if that good news rocks you, and it, it, if you enjoy knowing that you can be known, and you can be loved, and you have purpose, if you delight in who God is and who he's made you to be, and you, you give out praise, and that glorifies this God. Our minds have to be stretched out to the whole world that God has made to recognize that we praise him everywhere. Because as we dive into the book of Psalms, I want us to know, first and foremost, our call is to praise. And as we come together as a family, as a church body, as we dive into this book together and see so much. Guys, I'm telling you, in the book of Psalms, we're going to see Psalms of lament, where we're weeping together. We're going to see psalms of thankfulness, where we're just like, oh my goodness, God, this is incredible. How blessed are we? We're going to see psalms that are talking about a coming Messiah. We're going to see psalms that are blessing the nations. We're going to see psalms of, of, just, of, of um, just majesty, of expression. We're going to see the depth of the range of the human emotion. And in the midst of all of this, guys, all of it, it leads to praise to the God who created us all, who created us with all this emotion in us. Can I tell you that emotion is not bad, it is good. And let's express it in praise as we delight in God together. Amen?